Between this morning and next Sunday, we're going to be reading all of Acts chapter 17 together. And before we read the first 15 verses today, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been to Bottoms Up Pizza before? Just, just by a show of hands, that's a lot. All right, let me ask you another question. Suppose you had to give me directions to Bottoms Up from here. What would you tell me? Now, now suppose you had to give me directions to Bottoms Up from my house in the West End. Those directions would be slightly different, wouldn't they? And why? Those directions would be slightly different because we're, we're starting from two different places. Now, the interesting thing about it is eventually your directions to me would sound the same. Both sets would eventually sound pretty much the same. You'd ultimately bring me to Cary Street or ultimately to the restaurant itself, but the way that you started giving me directions would be different. In one sense, effectively communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are not yet Christians is just like that. Eventually, our message to them will sound the same no matter who we're talking to. We're going to tell them about Jesus because he's the only way to God. We're going to bring them with our words to his cross, to his empty tomb. And then ultimately, we're going to look at them and we're going to tell them that they must respond to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection with repentance and faith so that their sins might be forgiven and that they might be reconciled to God. That will never change. That will never change, no matter who it is we're speaking to. However, the way that we begin the conversation with people will be shaped by their starting point. What, what do they currently believe about God, about sin, about Jesus Christ, about the Bible, about the kind of life that, lo- that God looks down upon with approval? And I mention all those things this morning because as we read Acts chapter 17 together, we're going to notice that the Apostle Paul takes a slightly different approach. He adjusts the presentation of his gospel, never his gospel itself, but he adjusts his presentation of the gospel depending upon the starting point of his audience. And so my my hope is that as we listen carefully over the next couple of messages, we're going to be equipped as Christians to proclaim the gospel effectively to people from all walks of life. So let, let me pray together, or let me pray for us as before we read the Bible together here. Lord, we just, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to once again hear your words from the pages of the Bible. And I pray that you would, you would help us at this moment. If there's, if there's, anything, if there's anything about me that would cause someone to not be able to truly hear you at this point, unless you do something special, then I pray that you would remove that barrier. Lord, if there's any past experience somebody has had uh, with Christianity or with some group of Christians that would be a barrier to them hearing your words this morning, I pray that you would remove that barrier. And Lord, I just pray that you would increase our attention span the way that it needs to be increased so that we might be able to hear your words and and respond accordingly. And everybody said, amen. Acts chapter 17, verse one. 
Now when they, or let me pause really quickly. Who is they? Anybody, who is they? Paul, Silas, probably Timothy in there. We'll we'll see that in a minute. Great, I, I did that just to demonstrate. Whenever you start at a particular place in the Bible, if you come across something like they or therefore, there are certain words that, that tell you you ought to go back to figure out what is being said. It's like watching a movie, coming in in the middle of a movie. You ever done that and you're trying to figure out, well, what's the plot, what's going on? And hopefully somebody will fill you in or you'll just watch it from the beginning the next time. Well, here we are. Paul is traveling from Philippi to the city of Thessalonica. So let's, let's read again as he travels with Silas and perhaps some others. Now, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security, or taken money as security from Jason, And the rest, they let them go. Now the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray one more time before we get into today's message. Lord, I just pray, I pray once again that you would help us to treat what we are reading as your very own words. The scriptures are your very own words. And the very plain reading and explanation of them is powerful because they are your words. And I just pray that we would trust that as your word goes out this morning, it's as Isaiah said, it it never returns to you without accomplishing the thing for which you sent it out. So we trust that this is going on this morning as well, that as your word goes out, it is accomplishing something. And I pray then that for our part, we would listen attentively 
as if God himself were speaking to us through the scriptures because that is exactly what is happening. And we ask for all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For the rest of our time, here's what I want to do. First, I want to challenge you this morning. I want to, I want to present a challenge to you, and here's what it is. I, I want you to listen attentively. I, I'm not fooled. I know what happens on Sunday morning. I sit there many times. I know what you go through. I know this is long. I know you have other important things to do. We, Robert, we understand that, don't we? I want you to listen because I really believe God wants to help us this morning with the way, particularly with the way that we help others to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, beyond the challenge, we're here, and let me give you the challenge. I want you to listen the way that the Bereans listened to Paul. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Now, I don't know whether or not these things will come up on the screen. Some things I say today definitely will not come up on the screen because I didn't give them anything, right? So, so all we have today is our Bible. Never a bad thing, all right? But verse 11, let's look at it really quickly. How did the Bereans, how did the Bereans listen to Paul? In verse 11, it says here that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed. Everybody say, therefore. I want you to believe what is being said this morning, but I want you to therefore believe. These Jews in Berea believed what Paul said, not because Paul was a pastor, not because Paul had a degree from seminary, not because Paul looked important, not because Paul was handsome, not because Paul was eloquent in his speech. They believed what Paul said precisely because when they, look at verse 11, examined the scriptures daily, they realized that what Paul was saying was actually just coming from the Bible. I want you to test everything that you hear from this place against what you see in the Bible. And I want you to make that a lifelong habit. I want you to weigh and evaluate what you hear us saying. Read your Bible, examine it even while we are speaking and say, is this so? Because we have no authority from God to compel you to obey what we think and what we believe and to get you to do what we think is important. We're here as messengers of the living God. And his word is what we commend to you. All right, so let's, there's my challenge. Read with me and, and listen as one who is examining the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is actually true. The next thing that I want to do with the rest of our time, actually, is I want to... I want to just let us, let us go through the first nine verses, really, and get some observations from Thessalonica. Let's just get some observations from Thessalonica. What, what do we see Paul doing? In fact, if I were to give you an outline, I would say, let's go and let's see where Paul goes, what he does when he gets there, and, and what happened as a result. So starting there in verse 1, let's look at where Paul goes. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, if you look at your map in the Bible, you'll, you'll get a sense of this or look up a commentary. As Paul travels from Philippi and goes southwest through these, these towns or cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia, he ultimately comes to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is about 90 miles southwest of Philippi. So think, if, in Richmond terms, think 90 miles, Drew, you're at your parents' house in Alexandria. 
It's about that distance. Or if you're more familiar with Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia. From here to Norfolk. So that's the distance that we're talking about. Now, Paul and his companions probably walked. Which is why they perhaps stopped in Amphipolis and Apollonia. You, I mean, that's a long walk. Maybe there was an animal involved. involved I have no idea. But that's a long walk if they did walk. And many pe- people believe they did. Now, now I want to point out then the commitment that Paul has to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. It's very clear from this passage that Paul is not the sort of Christian that people love today. People, people want Christians, and, and tell me if this sounds accurate from what you pick up. People want Christians today to be the sort of Christians who believe in Jesus, and that sort of thing is true for them. And it does them some good, and it benefits them in their daily life. But they certainly want that thing to remain a private matter. And they never want their faith to ever come out in such a way that would cause anyone else to think about where they stand in relationship to God and to Jesus Christ. And, and worse, to perhaps challenge them with the truth that they need to come to faith in Jesus Christ as well. That sort of Christianity is despised, and it actually always meets with the kind of response that we'll eventually see in verse 5 today. But, but Paul was, was one of those Christians, and I, and I hope this is the sort of Christian you are, he was one of those Christians who never saw the grace of God as something which terminated on him, but which was to be shared with others through the proclamation of the gospel. And more than that, Paul was never one of these Christians that confined his gospel-spreading efforts to his own city. It's very popular in church planting and church movements and, and, and all these different things now for people to talk about their own neighborhoods and their own city to the complete neglect of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into the final frontiers, into places where people have not yet been given the opportunity historically to hear the message of Jesus Christ and to respond with repentance and faith. Doing that sort of thing is something we, we delegate to special people who have a calling to be involved in missions outside of their own neighborhood and outside of their own city. Because see, see, global missions and, and, and you know, taking the gospel all over the world and, and going into unreached people groups, that's not for me. That's, that's, you know, that's just not my thing. We don't understand Christianity when we say that. I'm just going to be very frank and honest. We do not understand Christianity when we say that. What you're doing when you say that is you're shrinking the one mission of Jesus Christ down to something so small that it's probably not even recognizable as his mission anymore. Now, I do understand That faithfulness to Jesus Christ and his mission is just as fully carried out in our own neighborhoods and in our own cities as it is anywhere else. I'm not denying that. But what what I want you to understand is that to this day, we can presently count about 6,400 distinct ethno-linguistic groups of people on this planet who historically have had little to no witness of the gospel among them. And my question is this, will this church that popped up on the scene about three years ago bring that number down by even one? If we had one member among us, like Paul, that would happen. 
well, what are the rest of us going to do? Well, how about this? How about we be like the church that sent the Apostle Paul out? Right? Some of you are so nervous that you've got to get up on a plane and go somewhere you've never heard of. Listen, some of you will do that, I hope. But the rest of us, in the meantime, let's join in partnership with people like Paul. And now I have good news for you. This is just like the preaching of the gospel, right? Tell people, here is what must be done to make things right with with you and God, and then show them that Jesus has already done it. Well, here's the good news. You guys are already in partnership with people who are going into the final frontiers. You probably didn't even know that. But some of you give financially to the work of this church. Every month, $1,000 is taken out and set aside specifically for the purpose of reaching unreached people groups with the gospel. It's what we call our Betty Bristol Unreached Fund. Matt and Betty Bristol have dedicated their lives to reaching unreached people groups. Um, And Betty, uh, there was no... There was no doubt or hesitation in our minds when, when we prayed and we thought, what are we going to do with this and what will we call it? The Betty Bristol Unreached Fund. There was Lottie Moon at one time, and now there's Betty Bristol. Um, and so we, there are lots of things, and people are being supported with this currently. Some of you remember Wendy Shelton, who was among us for some time, but now she's off in a part of the world that I'll just call Asia this morning, and if you want more specifics, you can come and ask me. But $250 per month outside of that $1,000 goes to support the work that Wendy is doing there in Asia. And there are so many other things like this. Folks in Myanmar, I mean, you, you guys don't know this perhaps. Have we told them yet, Robert? You helped to purchase bamboo houses for missionaries in Myanmar. So keep giving. And some of us, let's go. But this is what Paul is doing and this is what we should be doing. Now, I didn't even plan to say that, so let me, let me watch the clock here. And speed up. Praise the Lord. All right, so here's some observations from Acts chapter 17. When they went into Thessalonica, Paul goes into the Jewish synagogue. And if you look closely, if you look closely at verse 2, it says that Paul went in as was his custom. So this was something he did all over the place. Now look at the implications of this, Rayshon Gray's, for church planters. Right? If you read the church planting literature out there now, they'll they'll tell you do whatever you can to avoid religious people. Because because when you go there, if those are the the people that form your core group, you're going to have to spend all your time unteaching them things, getting them to unlearn things. They've got too much legalism and baggage and, and all this sort of thing. Let me ask you a question. Why does Paul go into the Jewish synagogue every single place when he's planting churches? Just a thought. Let me ask you another question. Is God perhaps able to use even deeply religious people, people perhaps with a lot of legalistic baggage, as effective core members of a new church? Okay. Keep that in mind. Some of you will plant churches. Keep that in mind. As was his custom, he goes in, in verse 2, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So we've, we sort of already answered the first question. Where, where did Paul go? Well, he went into the Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. Now, what did he do when he got there? I'm going to give you a statement of what Paul did. All right, now, now watch your, your Bible very closely, because this statement that I'm going to give you is going to come from a combination of verses 2 and 3. 
It says here that Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul goes in, and he finds in this synagogue people with a particular starting point. These are people with convictions that are very similar in some sense to Paul's very own. Whatever else these people might have believed, when you went into this place, this synagogue of the Jews, you found people there who believed that the words of the scriptures were true. The the scriptures were truth from God. Now, many of those people might have been largely ignorant of the content of those scriptures. Some of them might have been very familiar with it. But this was a setting very much like the average church that you walk into today. Some people in there, many people in there, believe that when you open this book that we call the Bible, you are hearing truth directly from God. And yet still, some of those people who have this conviction are not Christians. They're not Christians yet. Because that conviction alone does not make you a Christian. And, and I'll, just tell you, I'll just tell you by way of fair disclosure, that, that describes me perfectly when I was 19 years old. I believe that this book was truth from God himself, and I never read it. I never read it. Never picked it up. It never made a difference in my life. I believed all the right information about Jesus, and I was not a Christian. And some of you in here this morning may be just like that. You've been in church all your life. You know that this book is nothing but truth from God, and you are not a Christian. In fact, you are so convinced that this book contains nothing but truth from God, you refuse to read it because you don't want to be accountable for what it says. And you think you can escape your accountability to God by willfully not reading the Bible or by avoiding church gatherings or by avoiding Christians. And yet here you are this morning because God knows how to find you. And he loves you so much that he won't let you run away from him. Did you know that that's why you're here? Paul encounters a certain kind of person here with a certain starting point. And as he goes in, what he does is, watch this, watch verse 2. He goes into the synagogue, which is he meets them on their turf. Are you willing, Christian, to meet other people on their turf? Paul was certainly familiar with this place, very comfortable in it. But will you meet other people on their turf? Or do they always have to come to your thing and your meeting? Paul goes in and he, watch this, reasons with them from the scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, that's what Paul did. He opens the Bible with these people, and then it says he explains it. Explaining and proving. When he reasons from the Scriptures, this is what he's doing. Now, this is very effective precisely because they believe these things to be true. You'll see him take a different approach in Athens next week. But here... Paul looks at people who believe that the Bible is truth from God and he reasons from what they believe to be true. Let me ask you a question. Who are the people in your life who fit this description, who believe 
that the Bible is truth from God, but they are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. If you can identify those people in your life, then what Paul does here is something that I want to recommend to you as an effective strategy for helping to reach them and bring them to faith in Christ. I want you to reason with them. This is the first thing. He reasons with them, he reasons with them from the Scriptures. Look closely there, and let me, let me kind of open up what this really means. That word reasons, when it says that he was reasoning with them from the Scriptures... That word reasoning is actually a word, dialegomai. It's the word from which we get the word dialogue. Paul goes onto their turf and enters into a dialogue with those who are present. And the dialogue is centered around the content of Scripture. It says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It wasn't an exchange of ideas where it was, a, okay, Here's what you think and here's what I think and, and both of those are equally valid. No, it was, a, it was a dialogue which centered around the content of Scripture where Paul was, he wasn't just shying away from whatever confrontation would result if he exchanged his ideas with someone else's. He was sensitive to the people he was speaking to. But notice what he says at the end of all of this in verse 3. It says, this Jesus whom I, what? This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So, so listen, Paul is dialoguing with people, but it's not the kind of dialoguing that you hear about today where you have to take out proclamation. Okay? Paul is dialoguing, but within that dialogue, when it's his turn to speak, he is boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. Dialoguing from the Bible and proclamation of truth are not at odds. It does not stop a free exchange of ideas that honors God. So you have to be careful when you hear some of these people saying, well, you just you have to throw out some of that proclamation and instead dialogue with people. Well, in the scriptures, those things are not at odds. When it's your turn to speak, proclaim Christ. And reason with people from the scriptures. Look at how the Bible describes here in verse 3 what it means for Paul to reason from the scriptures. Because this is exactly what I want us to do. He explained and proved. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise again. Now, it's very interesting if you were to look up these words, explaining and proving... That word explaining actually means to open something. It's the same word that you find in Luke chapter 24 when it says that Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. It's the same word we came across recently in Acts chapter 16 where it says there in verse, I believe it's verse 14 or 15 or 16 or 17, somewhere in there. Paul speaks to Lydia and it says there that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Like I hope the Lord is opening our hearts right now to pay attention. Paul opened the content of Scripture for these men who were very familiar with it. Their Bibles were already open, but the message that God was trying to get through was not yet opened, and so Paul had to open for them their open Bibles. 
And in this opening of what was already opened, it's just like when I open the fridge, Heather sends me to get something out of the fridge or the cupboard, and she says, it's right there in the fridge, and I open it, and I can't see it. You all know what I'm talking about? Just can't find it, and then she, she walks over and, and walks in and just kind of sticks her hand in and looks at me like this and gets it out herself. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes God puts things in the Bible, we're reading it, and we just don't see it. We just don't see it. And that's what was happening to these Jews in the synagogue. They were reading it. It was open, but they couldn't see it. And Paul needed to open it for them in a deeper way. As a matter of fact, keep your finger here. Don't get lost. But look at Genesis chapter 22. We, we have a good example of what Paul was probably doing with this group in Thessalonica, particularly when we read Acts chapter 13. You get to see him using passages of the scriptures they would have had and showing them why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead. But I imagine Paul probably took some time with these gentlemen in in Genesis chapter 22, among other places, as he progressively dialogued with them. People don't always get saved in one conversation with you. Have you learned that? He reasoned with them over the course of weeks takes time. It takes the average person, I'm told, 17 conversations before the light clicks, or lights don't click, before the light turns on or, or something clicks. But in Genesis chapter 22, I imagine the Apostle Paul might have taken them to this story, and they would have looked at it again with fresh eyes. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And and Paul, Paul would have stopped for just a second and he would have said, Now you guys are familiar with the story of the Bible, right? Did Abraham have only one son? No, 13 years before Isaac was born, who was born? Ishmael, was not Ishmael the son of Abraham? Paul would have dialogued with them here and he would have said, why then does God say to Abraham in verse 2, it's not up on the screen. Yes, it is. (laughs) Well done, Lee Caustic. Take your son, your only son, and offer him. And then Paul probably would have let them think about that, and he would have just kept going. And as he would continue reading, they would see in in verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, who uh, who is he preparing to offer? His son Isaac, his only Son, on some wood. Verse 4, on the, everybody say, third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So in Abraham's mind, his son has now been dead for three days. And if we read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and on, it tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered or was willing to offer up his son Isaac. 
But he reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead on the third day. And Paul would have read this to these people. And he would have been careful to point out verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, you guys stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go and worship and we will come back to you again. Now how are we going to come back? If you're going to offer your son, Abraham reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead on the third day. And you have to ask yourself, this Paul would have said to the people in the synagogue, why? Why would Abraham tell his servants to stay there in verse 5 with the donkey? And then in verse 6, take the wood of the burnt offering and lay it on his son Isaac. I don't don't understand. If you've got a perfectly good beast of burden there, why are you loading the wood on your son's back? Why is your son, who is about to be sacrificed, carrying the wood upon which he will be sacrificed? Paul was opening for them the plan of God. This was a dress rehearsal, and Paul said, here's what God was doing. The father was sacrificing his only son. He put the wood on his son. His son carried it to the place of his own sacrifice. And God, of course, in his mercy, tells Abraham, don't harm your son. This was just a test. He said, I now know that you love me because you did not withhold from me your one and only son. And it wasn't like God all of a sudden came to this knowledge like the open theists would say. Some of you don't know who those people are and you don't need to be overly concerned. But what he was saying was that we now can look at God and say, we know, God, that you love us. Because you did not hold, withhold from us your one and only son. Paul reasoned with them. He opened, he explained, he opened the scriptures to them. Showing them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise on the third day. And so many places like this. You know the story of Jonah. Three days, three nights, brought back up. The whole Bible is about Jesus. That's why it's so hard sometimes when we go into it and we approach it as if, I'm just going to read this to see how it applies to my life. Well, that, that's, that's not as easy as you would think at first because the Bible is not about you. Right? Right? That's the challenge of it. It's not about you. And so, yes, there is much that applies to our life, but it is first about Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad to know why it's so difficult? Good. So don't be so discouraged the next time you read your Bible and you're having a hard time figuring out how it applies to your life. Do this instead. See how God wants to apply your life to the world. Now, that's much easier. The Bible does indeed apply to our lives, but our lives are meant to apply to God's plan for the world. And so Paul would have, let's join me again in Acts 17, he would have reasoned with them, explaining and proving that it was necessary. And this is where all gospel preaching ultimately must come. All of our evangelism must come to this place where we are proving for people, proving to people that Jesus had to suffer and die, that it was necessary, that Christianity and what Jesus did is not simply optional, it's not simply beneficial to some, but it is necessary for all. Necessary for all. And necessary for two reasons, because of things that are true about God and things that are true about us. 
It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die because people sinned in God's world. And God is perfectly just. He's not just a creator, and he's not just the rightful ruler of the world. He's also a judge, and he's a perfectly righteous judge. And that means, at the very least, that wherever sin is committed in his world, he is fully committed to punishing it as it deserves to be punished. Because God will never let history play out its last word and say, sin at some point in my world conquered me. There is no place in God's world, there is no person in God's world who will be an entry point for sin that ultimately stands in God's world and shakes its fist in his face and says, you couldn't get me. God is going to root out everything in his world that is sin and that causes sin. And that includes the sin in you and me. He will do it. Sin will not exist and will not live in God's world. He's just. And so Jesus had to die because sin had to be paid for. Some offering had to be presented for sin. And look at me. You're sensible people. You know this. You know when sin is committed in a relationship, an offering must be made. If you hurt somebody you're in a relationship with, you've been caught doing something wrong, don't you immediately sense the guilt that comes as a result? And don't you immediately sense your need to present something to this person? Don't you sense that you owe them something for what you've done? You might even say something like this, I owe you an apology. See, sin creates a debt, doesn't it? Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? That sin creates a debt which must be paid? Lord, I pray that you would save that bird. (laughs) People are like that without Christ. Desperately trying, desperately trying to make things right between them and God and to get out and to go where they think they need to go and unable to do it. For those of you who can't see, there is a bird flapping its wings, trying to get out of the building. And he just can't get out. In, in fact, the Bible says, look at Romans chapter 3. This is just what the Lord's doing. The rest of my message has been lost. Romans chapter 3. Verse 20. After saying in verse 19 that the whole world's mouth has been stopped and is accountable to God... In verse 20, Paul says that for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes only the knowledge or the awareness of our sin. Your religious efforts, your moral efforts will never be able to make things right between you and God. It's just like the man who has been unfaithful to his wife or his girlfriend. Once that that sin is committed... And the damage is done to the relationship. I ask you, as sensible people, does doing ten good things after that make up for what was just done? When Kobe Bryant was 